God, when I think about you, the, the King of Kings, I can't help but think of Psalm 8. David says, who, who is man that you're mindful of us? Who am I that even the President of the United States would know me, much less the King of Kings? Yet how deep your love was for us, that you would come to be born among us, that you would take suffering for us, that you would rise again from the dead to give us new life, and that you would call us each by name, that we might not just be your servants, but sons and daughters of the Almighty God, now and for all eternity. But God, I admit to you, I, I say that, but how, how my mind can almost grow numb to such a marvelous truth. Forgive me, God, for the times that I bring you down, that I remove you from being God, and I try to mold you in my image instead. Forgive me for the times that I try to tame you, that I ignore you, that I push you away. Forgive me for the times that I allow the problems around me to look bigger than you. Lord, I know that there are many in here today who, myself included, were tired. We're tired. It seems as if so many problems going on in the world around us. For some of us in our lives personally, it feels overwhelming. It seems so much bigger than us. And it can feel very, can feel anxious about it. As we're walking through still a pandemic, as we, we've, our hearts go out for those in Louisiana right now, as Ida comes right through, for those in Afghanistan, Lord, for, for all of those who are fighting and bickering with each other in the midst of our nation. God, for broken families, for broken relationships. God, for, for, for habits and addictions we just don't know how to break. Lord, for all of these things that just seem so big and so overwhelming, there is nothing more that I need to do right now, God, than just to marvel in your glory and your greatness. That though the kings of this earth fall short of all these things, you, the king of kings, never fall short. In fact, death itself could not hold you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we worship and as we prepare to hear your word, that faith will arise in us, your people, and that you will encourage and build up your people, everybody in this room, that you will encourage them this morning that you challenge us and expose our hearts where they need to be exposed. And then in the midst of that, build us up again. That we might walk without fear and in love. Not reacting with anger, but stretching out in compassion. Because that's who you are. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen, amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. But you better believe we aren't done. We aren't.
But I am so happy to see you guys here this morning. What a joy it is, and I sincerely mean that, to be able to come and worship with each of you, uh, to proclaim Jesus, to worship him together with you guys. Because there is no hope other than our King. Amen. And so we are going to dig in yet again. Um, all summer long, we've been working through the book of Mark, which is one of the four accounts the New Testament gives us of the life of Jesus. And I mean, I, before I go on, haven't Pastor David and Pastor Matt just done a phenomenal job the last couple weeks? Man, what a privilege and a joy it is uh, that we know we get to be part of a team together and we get to exalt Jesus together. And frankly, I know that if I came up here and spoke every single Sunday, you'd, like, you'd get Kirk's take, <laughs> you know, right? But it's important that we hear from others, too. Um, and and I, I just am so, so grateful for those guys and the way they minister among us. Um, so as we dig back into Mark, remember, we're asking and wrestling with really two questions this whole summer long. Number one, who is Jesus? What does Mark want us to see about who he is? And number two, for those of us who call him Lord, King, Christians, what does it mean and look like to follow him today? And as we've walked through this gospel, we've seen these questions answered and, 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 and continue to be built upon. And as we get here to the end, because we are just in chapter 15 out of 16 today, we'll see that these questions begin to find some unexpected answers. But let me just zoom out and, and, and remind us of where we've been thus far. Because if you have picked up the Gospel of Mark for the first time, it's quite a ride. If you remember from the start of Mark, we get introduced right away to a the arrival of, the, of a divine king. He quotes the prophet Isaiah who says, prepare the way of the Lord. The God's Messiah, God's Son, God, the, the, God, the divine King has, who's filled with God's Spirit is breaking into the world. And John the Baptizer even says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And you're thinking, what kind of king is this going to be? But then you meet this Galilean man from the insignificant town of Nazareth named Jesus. He didn't come from a wealthy family. He didn't go to the top Hebrew schools. At first take, he doesn't look like much. And you're like, what kind of king is this? But then he begins to proclaim about the kingdom of God. He calls it the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, that God is bringing about a new people and a new way. But when this guy, Jesus, talks about God, unlike the other religious leaders, he talks about him like he actually knows him. And just as this king is different than all the others, his kingdom is proving to be quite different too. The first guys he calls to follow him, ordinary fishermen. But he doesn't just proclaim God's kingdom with words, but also power. He breaks evil spirits off of people. He, he heals people of all kinds of diseases. He tells a storm to calm down in three words, peace be still, and it listens. He feeds thousands of people with a few loaves and fish. Twice. And you're starting to wonder, what? 
It's certainly not a king who seems motivated by the same things other kings are motivated by. Fame, power, money. Instead of kissing up to the religious leaders, he calls out their hypocrisy. He has a rich young man come up to him. Instead of petitioning him for a a massive donation, Jesus says, I want you to sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. He doesn't seem interested in all the other things other kings are. He seems interested in the heart in faith. In fact, in front of his disciples, praising a poor widow who gives two pennies because that was all that she had. What kind of king is this? And then, Mark 11, we start to realize, ah, now he's starting to look like a king because he's riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a symbol of peace, to the shouts of praise and hosanna of all the people. Uh-huh, this is what a king does. But then... At the last Passover meal with his disciples, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them, and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup which represents my blood poured out for you. What? And then his own disciple Judas betrays him. The chief priests arrest him. Unjustly condemn him as a heretic. And now, second to last chapter in Mark's gospel, we see the divine king is standing before a lowly Roman governor named Pilate. What kind of king is this? How did we go from prepare the way of the Lord to the king on trial? How could he break evil spirits off of people, but he can't break the own chains off his wrists? How could he calm the raging waves, but he still accepts the spit of his accusers in his face? What kind of king is this? And if, however we answer that question, for those who follow him and call him our king, What does it mean to follow him today? So we are in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 20 today. And I really have just one point for you. One point and that's it. If Jesus is our king and his kingdom is our home, then he is teaching us how to sacrificially love others in this world no matter how they treat us. Mark 15, verse 1. If you, have, uh, if you want to grab one of the Pewback Bibles in front of you, we are on page 828. All right. If you do not have a Bible at home, take one of these Bibles with, it, with you. This is our gift to you. Okay, You can have that. We believe that God's Word is that important. Uh, so this is our gift to you. But we are in Mark 15, starting at verse 1. And could you please stand together as we read God's Word, if you are able. Mark 15, starting at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? 
See how many things they were accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd and had Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Lord, after such a difficult story, I pray that number one, that you show us yet again who you are and that you use your word to change and mold us to be like you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, reading this passage, I asked myself while reading it, you know, would I have been the ones in this story who believed in Jesus? Or would I have been the ones who rejected him? You ever wondered that? You know, my first take, of course, is, yeah, I'd totally be on the side of Jesus. Right? The miracles alone are enough to make me believe and see who he is. But the more that I've looked into the story and sought to understand why Jesus' rejectors rejected him, the more I've seen my own heart. And I've realized that the same heart that led the chief priests and Pilate to reject Jesus isn't far from any of us. Mark 15 we see several different groups back to back to back who reject Jesus, but they do so for different motivation, for different motive, for different reasons. And really, I'm going to break this down, and what I see is three motivations for why these different groups ended up pushing away Jesus. First, we meet the chief priests and the religious ruling body called the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who arrested Jesus and held a pitiful excuse for a fair trial and the dark of night trumping up charges against him. What were the charges? Blasphemy, which in Jewish law was worthy of death. 
They were saying that Jesus was trying to deceive people into believing that he was God's Messiah, that he was God's divine king that was there to save them. And the chief priests knew, though, that as much as they wanted to destroy Jesus, the only ones who could lawfully execute Jesus were, were Pilate and the Roman authorities. So they decided, they, had, they concocted a plan for how to get to Pilate to get him to do the dirty work for them. And so they show up first thing the next morning, right when Pilate's office hours began. But why did the chief priests hate Jesus so much? Why did they reject him? See, the chief priest rejected Jesus because he exposed their hearts. They loved when others honored them as good, noble men, authorities on God and godly living, but in reality their hearts were dark with pride and envy. And when Jesus exposed publicly their hypocritical hearts, and called out their sin, they had one of two choices. One, they could have humbled themselves before this divine king. Or two, they could find a way to get rid of him in order to protect the illusion of their own goodness. Of course they chose the latter. Why? Because they wanted a savior who would exalt them, not humble them. Puff them up publicly, not call them out. Make them feel good, not change them. But I wonder if I was one of the chief priests, would I have done the same? When God shines a flashlight on my pride, how do I respond? Have I cared at times more what people think of me than who I actually am? What about you? When selfishness and sin are exposed in our hearts? Do we humble ourselves before Jesus? Or do we push him away and just turn on Netflix? And I realized reading this story that it wasn't just the chief priests who rejected Jesus. I have too. Second we meet the Roman prefect or governor named Pilate. Pilate was directly appointed by Rome to to make sure this minor province of Judea remained calm. (laughs) Remained calm. most, Most of the time, Pilate lived in a beach palace in a city called Caesarea. But he would only come to Jerusalem when there was a chance a riot could break out. And Passover festival, pretty good chance. So he was living in the praetorium for this moment. But you see, Pilate wasn't interested in understanding the Jews. He was only interested in suppressing them with brutal force if necessary. Why? So that he could keep his job and his luxuries. He only worked in the morning. He had all kind of fun in the afternoon. And the chief priests knew this. But they also knew Pilate could care less about charges of blasphemy against the Jewish law. Why would Rome care about that? But what Pilate would care about is if this guy was a rebel against Rome. So they devised a plan in their mind like, okay, instead of calling him the Messiah, which is a very Jewish word, 
We'll use the secular Roman word. We'll call him the king of the Jews. This will lead Pilate to think that this man is trying to commit a mutiny or an insurrection against Rome. Blasphemy, Rome does nothing. Insurrection deserves crucifixion. So they slap the label on him. And here we have the divine king on trial. And Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, you have said so. Or in other words, yes, but not like you think. And then Jesus is silent. Pilate is amazed. Pilate sees the innocence of Jesus. Even to the point where he tries to convince the crowds to let Jesus go. But in the end, Pilate satisfies the crowd over pursuing truth. See, the thing is, Unlike the chief priest, Pilate didn't hate Jesus. And you don't have to hate Jesus to reject him. But Pilate rejected Jesus because acknowledging the truth of him would mess up his nice, comfortable life. Pilate realized Jesus was innocent. But the truth wasn't his main concern. He appeased the crowds to keep the peace to keep his cushy life. But I have to wonder, if I was Pilate, would I have done the same? Have I ever suppressed the truth because it didn't serve me? Have I ever fallen for the lie that my security is in my job, my money, and my stuff? What about you? What about us? Have we ever pushed Jesus away? Because frankly, it was just easier. And I realized it wasn't just Pilate who rejected Jesus. It was us too. And then third and last, we meet the crowds and the soldiers. One group Jewish, the other Roman. But both of them are caught up in the anxiety and the anger of their day. Pilate said, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas was a Jewish man who led a murderous insurrection against Roman rule, trying to free Israel from Rome. So would the people go with the Savior of peace or Barabbas, the Savior of violence? And the chief priests got in there to the crowd and they stirred up their anxiety and stirred up their anger. And all of a sudden this crowd was united, but they were united around fear and hate, preferring the man who would hate their enemies over the Savior of love. And after Jesus was brutally flogged, The soldiers called together a whole company around Jesus and like a pack of wolves around fresh meat. They brutally mocked Jesus. Purple robe, crown of thorns, striking him with a staff and sarcastically calling out, Hail, King of the Jews. Why did the crowds and the soldiers reject Jesus? Just because everybody else did. 
unwilling to stand out. They allowed the fears and the outrage of their day to sweep them up, bypass their minds, and control them. They fell for the propaganda of the chief priests or Rome, which triggered this, 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 this fear and this, this animalistic hatred in the case of the, the soldiers that they projected onto Jesus. And as hard as it is to ask this question, I wonder if I were the crowds and the soldiers, would I have done the same? For fear of standing out, have I just gone along with the crowd instead of pursuing truth for myself? Do I settle for categories of people? Like, are they for us? They're against us. Do I react from my fears? Do I absorb the anger that I feel from other people? What about you? What about us? Have we allowed the anxiety and anger of our day to control us? And as I personally wrestle with these questions, I realize it wasn't just the crowds of the soldiers who rejected Jesus. I have too. And as we've read through Mark, you know, our, 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 my natural bent has always been to see myself and his disciples, to see myself and those on the side of Jesus. But I cannot deny the ways that I see my own heart and those who rejected him. It wasn't just the religious leaders, Pilate, crowds, soldiers who rejected Jesus, but we all have. We all have. But who is this king? And how does this king respond to those who reject him? And even though we've rejected him, we've turned our backs on him, how does he respond to us? See, while we have rejected Jesus, he bore our sin and suffering to bring us peace and life. Who is this king? What kind of king is it? He's the same king Isaiah spoke of 600 years before he arrived. And I just want to read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. This is God speaking. Of a servant to come. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, which would have been true after a flogging like he received. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. That we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 600 years before Jesus showed up. 
And as emotionally tough as it is to read these stories of Jesus' rejection. If we know the prophet Isaiah in these words, these words pierce through the scene like a ray of light. That even when human beings had their plans and they did their evil and they rejected Jesus... That God interwove his salvation plan of grace and forgiveness through his son. And you can't help but to see this tension between the plans of men and God throughout the story. That in their pride, the chief priests unjustly condemned Jesus as a false Messiah. When Jesus is actually following God's plan of redemption as the true Messiah. When Pilate only cared about himself... And therefore condemned a righteous man. It would be Jesus' righteousness that would be counted toward all those who believe. That the crowds saved the man of violence, but condemned the man of peace, who would then bring peace between those who believe in God. The soldiers treat Jesus as less than human, mocking him as the king of kings, when he would die to save all humanity and be exalted as the king of kings. You see, since the very beginning, Genesis 3, humanity has rejected, denied, stiff-armed, and ignored the divine king. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while I deserve death for my high treason against heaven's king, instead... This king submitted himself to death to meet God's just requirement for my sin, that it might be satisfied in him. And he did this not just so that he might call us servants of God, but he might call us children of God, for that's how much he loves us. And we know that we, we, we believe this. And we're starting to understand this when we realize the magnitude of God's grace and love, that there's no response other than for us to surrender all of ourselves to follow Jesus in gratitude and joy. Yeah. Everybody do it. Everybody. <laughs> that although we've rejected him, Our king has rescued us with his life and adopted us as his own. He says, will we believe? Will we trust? And if we do choose to give our lives to this king, to this divine king, to this suffering servant, what is it going to mean or look like to follow him? What does it look like to follow a suffering king? As we follow the suffering king, we can expect the world will treat us as it also treated him. Jesus told his disciples, Mark 13, 9, you must be on your guard. He says, you will be handed over to local councils like Jesus was, flogged like Jesus was. On account of me, you will stand before governors like Jesus did and kings as witnesses to them. Wait, wait, wait a second, Kirk. Like, you know, the whole part about how Jesus suffered for us, like, that was kind of nice. Um, this whole, like, us suffering with him thing, <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about that. 
But why? why? Why is that even, I don't know, necessary? See, as we seek holy, authentic lives in the way of Jesus, and as we tell others and, and believe that he is the one way to life, there will be some who are drawn to it, but like the chief priest, others will be threatened by it. And when we live for God's kingdom, and we're no longer... <laughs> We no longer need the comforts and the affirmations of this temporary world. There will be some who want that freedom too. And there will be others who just simply don't know what to do with us. And when we refuse to go along with the mania of the crowd or fall in line with the us versus them battles of the day, some people will assume, well, if we're not against their enemies, we must be against them. And as a result, there will be times when we will be rejected, misunderstood, mistreated, unfairly judged, treated as less than, made fun of, maybe even harmed, just as Jesus was. Sometimes it will be subtle, other times not. Jesus doesn't say go looking for it. Go, he doesn't say go seek after it, but he says don't be surprised by it. He doesn't say go obsess over it and try to read into everything going on about it, but he says be on your guard and prepared to remain faithful in the midst of it. I read a quote this week. Uh, there's, a, there's a bishop named David Naringi. Um, I probably butchered that last name, but I did my best. I even practiced it <laughs> so much. This bishop, and I didn't want to share this this morning. I didn't want to because, frankly, he, this bishop was faced persecution under the reign of Idi Amin. You guys remember him in Uganda, the vicious dictator. And now a bishop in Uganda, he said, he says, if we aren't experiencing opposition as Christians, it's probably because we're going the same direction as the world. And that's sober you like it did me. And if I'm honest, man, like many of you have grown up in a nation, this one, that relatively speaking has so much religious freedom. So much religious freedom, especially compared to other nations. And the thought of rejection or suffering, man, it just, it makes me nervous. I remember as a kid reading stories of, of, of Christian men and women who really have suffered or given their lives or been imprisoned for following Jesus, but, but their experiences couldn't have felt further from my reality. And when I see that and I start to get nervous, you know, we, we can't help but have one of two reactions. One, we either want to shrink back because we just, you know what, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go back to safety and what's comfortable. Or two, we get afraid and angry and we want to go at the culture out of fear and anger. But if we follow Jesus, do you realize that holy irritation we feel in us in the midst of our comfort is actually him? saying you can't just settle for what's comfortable. 
And that even when we try to go at the world and fear and anger is, is wanting to lead and control us, that God's compassion says, whoa, 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 I, I want to show you how to see and love the lost, the hurt, the broken, and those who don't know Jesus. Because if Jesus is our king and his kingdom is our home, then he is teaching us how to sacrificially love others in this world no matter how they treat us. And when I was thinking through all of this this week, I couldn't help but think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in countries like Afghanistan. You know, Afghanistan is on the forefront of our minds because it's right on the news every day. And we can't help but to feel for just the, 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 the tremendous exponential uptick of persecution that brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing there. But the truth is that it's not just in Afghanistan. There is a non-government organization, a Christian organization called Open Doors. And every year they give out what is probably the most accurate report on global persecution called the World Watch List. And the last report said that one in eight Christians in the world right now live in nations that, that have very high to extreme levels of persecution. As one in eight to translate that, could likely face imprisonment, maybe even death for their faith. It's almost hard to believe, isn't it? But it's our reality. And I know that none of us in this room would even try to say that the opposition we face in this country can come close to what they experience. No, no one would make that case here. I know that. But I know that we still can't help but to feel nervous about, well, what will happen if I, if, I, if I stand up for Jesus? What would happen if I'm honest about what I believe and who I am? Some of you, you know firsthand what this is like. Your families have cut you off. Friend groups no longer include you. You've been labeled as X, Y, and Z because you are committed to Christ and his word. And those who label you seem, don't seem to be interested in actually understanding or getting to know you. Many of you, man, you feel afraid because, because you sense that in this nation, some, some of our rights that, that we've long been entitled to, we feel like, oh, are they eroding? You know, in the midst of all of this, we can't help but to feel nervous. And our immediate reaction is to either step back in safety and comfort, keep our mouth shut, or we want to just go at the culture, but motivated out of fear and anger. But instead of reacting in fear, pain and suffering can actually lead to new life. The Archbishop Charles Chaput, he's located in Philadelphia, says it better than I can. He says, suffering can bend and break us. But it can also break us open to become the persons God intended us to be. It depends on what you do with the pain. If we offer it back to God, he will use it to do great things in and through us. Because suffering is fertile. It can grow new life. Will the pain that we experience break us or will it break us open? It depends on what we do with it. 
Do we seek to hold on to it and just make it go away? Do we ignore it? Do we fight with it? Or do we bring it to Jesus? Do we lay it before the cross? In doing so, realizing the whole time that we had, he has never left us. That he understands more than we do what we're going through. And he will never forsake us. Ever. And if Jesus is our king and his kingdom is our home, then he is always going to be teaching us how to sacrificially love others in this world no matter how they treat us. Will you stand and pray with me? Our King, I do not understand close to everything. In fact, that what I understand is so small about why you do what you do and why you allow suffering in the world. But when I see that you weren't just a king who came with a sword, that you were a king who took on the rejection of this world in order that we might be accepted in your kingdom. Wow. And Jesus, I pray that you show us as your people, how to come to you in the midst of the pain and the questions and the confusion. When we encounter opposition or we're afraid that we will encounter opposition, Jesus, may you show us how to be wise, discerning. May you fill us with your spirit and lead us to love as you love. And Lord, we want to take this moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan in Iran, in North Korea, in India, in parts of China. God, and all across this world, hundreds of millions of Christians who have real reason to, to even fear for their lives because of their faith. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your church across the world. God, that you would show us as your church here in America how we can support them. It seems daunting. It seems overwhelming. But can you show us, Lord, how we can stand alongside of them? But I pray, Lord, that in the midst of that, God, that your gospel will continue to spread, that you protect your people, that you encourage them, that you build them up, that you give them courage and strength and, and that eternal perspective to realize that your kingdom is coming that you haven't given up. Gosh, God, I even struggle to know how to pray for them because I, I feel like my experience is so different from theirs. And so, Lord, I just pray that your kingdom would come and your will be, would be done. And may we be faithful no matter what, just as you are faithful to love us even unto death. We love you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said.